0: Welcome to episode 98 of The Dive Down, a Magic the Gathering podcast for the casual spike, focused on the latest decks, trends, and strategies in modern and pioneer. My name is Stanislav here in Chicago, and with me on the line from Denver, Colorado, it's the one and only Shane Beeps.
1: Stan, they said we'd never make it to episode 98, and I told them they were wrong, and we've proved them wrong. We've made it. The big 98.
0: Look at us, laughing at the haters. Hate is gonna hate. But we're at 98. That was perfect.
1: Just knocked it out of the park. <laughs> that big old beach ball with number, number 98
0: written on it. Also with us, the godfather, Dave Harbarger. Hi. <laughs> hey, Dave. How's it going? Look, I know we said we weren't going to talk about the election, but we're recording on Monday. Yeah, Dave, have some candy while I get on my soapbox.
1: That's, that's Reese's candy. That's you can't You can't have Reese's.
2: You're Dave. What do you mean? I love Reese's. Yeah, it's his candy. You stole it. Oh, yeah. It's apostrophe S. Wow, that was maybe the worst joke we've ever tried to open with <laughs> here. <laughs> but it's better than you talking about the weather again, you know, so I'll you, take it.
0: C- can I just say, it's weird recording on Monday, knowing that on Tuesday there's a big election. Kind of un- unclear what's going to happen this week. I feel like if if the listeners are hearing this on Friday, that probably means... We feel like things are going to be okay, or we're okay, in our lives. But if you're not hearing this on Friday and the episode comes out after... Ooh, it means I ate a lot more research. We'll see what happens, but thank you for joining us on The Dive Down. On this week's episode, The Tax Man Cometh. We're playing the best color in modern, maybe all of Magic the Gathering, as we dive into mono, white, death, and taxes. We'll dust off our aether vials... We'll pet our and Arbiters and visit the Sky Mall. We're also kicking off the show with the breakdown of a whole bunch of modern tournaments. I tried to give Shane the week off from doing the breakdown, but the guy's a workaholic. He can't stop reporting on the news.
1: I I love looking at deck lists. That is one thing I do love doing. Just seeing what's going on in the world of modern. Just laying in bed, looking at deck lists. What a beautiful Sunday morning. But before all that, Stan... It's the moment
0: we've all been waiting for. Housekeeping. Yes! Shout out to new patron, Gall. Thank you for joining the Dive Down Nation. Also, big thanks to Ian S. This is grilled cheese himself. Went up a tier this week. So, big thanks to Ian. I
1: love grilled cheese. When I was a kid, we called it toasted cheese. I think that
0: was kind of an aberration. It clearly wasn't toasted. That's actually how I... Learned to make grilled cheese, and it wasn't until I was like in college that my college girlfriend was like, "You put it on the stove with butter, you monster!"
1: Oh, you just toasted bread and put like some
2: Kraft singles in between them. Yeah, no, no. no. Can I tell you how how? This happened in my household when I was growing up. My mom used to make me grilled cheeses in the microwave. Nope. And she used to send them for lunch sometimes. (laughs) So what she would do is get two pieces of bread, put some blocks, like cut blocks off of the end of the block of cheddar, like little blocks, put it on the bread, melt it in the microwave, and then put it in my bag and send me to school. So I would have like... (laughs) Che- cheese block between white bread for lunch sometimes when I was a kid. <laughs>
0: I'm imagining a lot of greasy book reports. That's so funny.
2: She also used to send me to school occasionally with a peanut butter, lettuce, and Miracle Whip sandwich on a hamburger bun. You all ever get that Better Homes and Gardens special from the '70s? Yikes! Yikes! This is why you are the way you
1: are now. My mom's '70s thing. She would just she would give me aspics. It was very strange. Your mom
2: made aspics? No. Oh, okay. I was just trying to lean in. Okay, what's aspects? Uh, savory Jello, like a Jello with ham salad in it, or something like that. It's a, it's like a, it's from, it's from back in the day, <laughs> Time Magazine
1: or something. Okay,
0: enough of that. Listen, listeners, if you want to join the Dive Down Nation, you can find us over at Patreon.com/slash/TheDiveDown. Join the super secret Slack. Research in the next week or two. We got a big shipment getting getting ready, so that stuff is going out. Get in there. While you have the chance. And uh,
1: thanks, Manatraders, for also helping sponsor the show. You can get 15% off the first three months of using Manatraders. I was again reminded how how easy and fast it is to use Manatraders just today. Uh, yeah, they're killing it. And um, clearly, the best rental service... That I know of, at least. So, yeah. So, what you can do, you can go over, when well, you sign up with a new account, use the code "the dive down" all one word, and they throw us a little bit of cash, and you get 15% off, and everyone's a winner, and we love it, and do that. Thank you.
0: Guys, I keep forgetting to return my cards. It's so bad. I feel guilty. Like, I, I accidentally kept a deck for like two weeks. They didn't even email me. I, I feel horrible. Oops. Two weeks. Was it all the I just keep renting euros. I can't stop.
2: <laughs> 27 euros Dot deck. And finally, just a reminder that this is episode 98. And while we like to make some fun jokes that this is the pivotal number, we are coming up on episode 100. And we are planning to do a live stream of the recording of episode 100 approximately 12 days from now. Uh, and so we just like to kind of this is, consider this a save the date. If you got invited f- to a wedding, uh, we're letting you know that the, it's going to be Saturday, November 14th at some kind of nighttime after my children go to bed. Um, we'll be live streaming us recording episode 100, uh, finding a way to interact with people, pot- uh, potentially in the chat, uh, doing some kind of charity uh, donation as part of it. And uh, we really just want a chance to hang out with everybody. We love the listeners. We'd love to just kind of get everybody together to celebrate uh, this milestone that I think legitimately we didn't know if we would ever make. But turns out we made it no problems. So a few problems. I'll be I'll be modeling backpacks. <laughs> I'll have several output changes throughout the episode. Oh, so keep an eye out. We will launch the URL that we'll be streaming from on Twitch with it. I imagine it'll be Shane's. Most likely, because we don't have a joint TDD one, but maybe we'll set one up.
0: Nah, let's just do it on Shane's. Everyone give him a sub. No, I'm an affiliate, man. Yeah, Shane's an affiliate. If you have Amazon Prime, just give Shane that Amazon Prime sub.
2: Oh, yeah. Prime me. Yeah. So we look forward to hanging out with people. Again, November 14th, Saturday night. All right. Thanks, Dave. Okay, so let's head on
1: into the breakdown. Back on Modern this week after a week of Pioneer last ep. And so I'm going to try to fly through three weekend events, uh, two challenges, and a modern championship qualifier. So, as usual, look at the top eight of each of these. Make note of anything we thought was interesting. Uh, I want to spend more time on our deck dive this week. We're always running out of time for our deck dives. I don't want to have that happen this week, but I say that every time, and then I spend 25 minutes on the breakdown. So, anyway, modern championship qualifier qualifier. So this qualifies someone for a championship, I think. I think it's just a PTQ, by the way. Why are they called championship qualifiers?
0: Because they're not called PTs anymore. True. All
1: right. First place, Berna Stores on four-color Uro uh, stuff. You know, control, ramp, take over the game. Second place, Free to on Amulet Titan. So there's no none of the green-white shenanigans happening here. Just get your Titan and your Dryad online, get things going, win the game. Third place, stream, underscore stream, rather, on Jund Death Shadow. This is the first time I've personally seen Brushfire Elemental. Uh, We actually sort of hinted at this card um, as one of the landfall aggressive creatures uh, from Zendikar Rising. This is a red and a green for a 1-1 with haste. Can't be blocked with power 2 or less. Landfall gives it plus 2, plus 2. So there's a couple of those
2: in there uh, just for some spice. Yeah, fascinating to me that they decided to go with the two drop over the one drop in Aquam Hellhound. So, I mean, note it's noteworthy that Brushfire Elemental comes with haste and also comes with some evasion in the form of the fact that it can't be blocked by creatures with power two or less. So interesting there. I mean, it's it's uh, two drops are kind of extra in Shadow, but I could see it working. What I think is like an interesting
1: thing that could possibly happen here is like, you know, you, there's only a singleton dismember. So it's like, I feel like, oh, it'd be cool. Like if I dismembered my opponent's only blocker, it was less than two power. I could, you know, drop this, this creature and fireball my opponent for five pretty easily. But, you know, it's like kind of a angle shoot or not really an angle shoot, just kind of like a pie in the sky dream. But this is really what you'd expect from an aggressive death Shadow deck.
2: Now, you know, you've got your Goyf, your Scourge, your Shadows, your Swift Spear, some spells. Yeah. One other card that's interesting here that's not usually here is uh, Renin Six. There's two Renin Six in this this deck, which maybe helps enable Brushfire Elemental a little bit, but also lets the deck Jund a bit more than Jun Shadow typically does. You know what I mean? hmm Yeah.
1: Uh, fourth place Chiron the Mage on four-color control nexus of fate type stuff. This is a lot like our other four-color Uro Omnath pile, but this has four Time Warp and a singleton nexus of fate. So I guess if you're making a bunch of free mana off your Sir Omnath, then might as well take some turns to use that mana over and over again,
2: I suppose. Yeah, the other big thing that people who have been playing this deck have talked about because um i was actually talking to lawson zandy who about this in the chat he's been playing a deck not totally unlike this is getting Mm -hmm. a red and six emblem going and then nexus of fading or not nexus time warping over and over again so (laughs) basically getting retrace uh so that you can just cast time warp over and over again take infinite turns essentially and he was swearing by the deck i mean it's it's interesting to see other people picking it up apparently so
1: yeah, I mean these are powerful cards. Might as well do some powerful things with them. Fifth place, Cray on. Is it Prowess? It's back. Our Prowess. One drops. Uh, a couple Bedlam Revelers. Three Sprite Dragon. Dave's favorite. Four Stormwing Elemental Entity. My friend. Stormwing Entity. Yeah, it's uh you know uh, he's been gone so long I forgot his name or its name. Um, and a lot of spells. You know, win. Sixth place, Soul Strong on selesnia Titan. So this is uh, the deck we've mentioned a number of times. It's sticking
2: around as a modern powerhouse. We've talked about Green White Titan a number of times on the show. And I just want to say, I played against this deck like four times oh <laughs> over the weekend while I was testing for this episode. This deck is really annoying to play against. And turns out, after all this time, Elvish Rec- Reclaimer is actually good. Turns out. Turns out instant speed land fetching
0: can be good. Yes. <laughs> seventh place, uh, Inuit
1: on Amulet Titan. So another Titan deck. Uh, eighth place, Oskia on Teemer, Scapeshift. Shift. So yes, if you were counting along, that's three Titan decks and kind of another big mana combo style deck in Scapeshift. Shift. So an interesting sort of uh, control
2: aggro and titan style decks that we're seeing here isn't that six titan decks there's three uro decks and three primeval titan decks yeah yeah basically a lot of titans that's a lot of titans okay let's head into sunday's challenge uh
1: this is more straightforward first place pathius 84 on Adnaz. second place Ziruo on four color uro pile third place house of mana mtg on amulet titan fourth place mogget on mm. red prowess Fifth place, Magic Online Perennial Appearer Batuina on Rakdos Shadow. Sixth place, Shock Troopa on Bluetron, the one true
2: Magic the Gathering deck. I mean, Shock Troopa is one of the most well-known Bluetron players, like, for many years now, so.
1: Yeah, they know what they're doing with it. Uh, Seventh place, Sheffin on Gruul Panza. Remember this deck? It's showed up a little bit this weekend. Eighth place, Max BV on Mono white taxes that's our that's our deck of the day hey oh man how coincidental and fortuitous saturday's challenge you'll see why i worked backwards in a second perhaps first place a gargamel on mono white taxes oh
0: that's also our deck of the day
1: Ah, (laughs) this version seems to run a few more swords than i usually see i think it also has a singleton main deck linvala uh, Keeper of Silence, I believe, not the other Linvala. Um, second place, Prague on Grixis Reclamation. Um, I guess this does reclamation-y things. Control the game, take over the endgame. Third place, Bam Zing on Four-Color pile Control. Fourth place, Max BV, who, if you're listening closely, you realize also finished eighth place on the following day on Mono White Taxes. Fifth place, Alpinko on Oops All Spells. Sixth place Fettig on Selesnya-Heliad combo. Yeah. Stanislav, this is a deck that you were recently championing in the written form.
0: Yeah, I wrote my first Magic article. Big thanks to FaithlessBrewing.com for letting me publish my thoughts. uh, With very little editing. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I I really like this deck. Um, Maybe we'll get to talk about it in a little bit more detail in a future episode. But uh, this deck makes very big spike feeders. I've never seen the spike feeder get so big. And I I just can't speak highly enough about how big those spike feeders are. They're huge.
1: Don't feed the spikes. They're huge this
2: time of year. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Seventh place, Vagabond87 on Charbelcher, all spells. It's still sticking around. I think if you're not ready for it thinking about it that's going to be a deck that maybe can surprise you and eighth place yama killer what's up yama our very first guest um mm-hmm. he
2: is on gruel ponza as well wow the second place deck in this event was not grixis reclamation it was team reclamation what i swear i saw fatal push of course or it's not teamer, it's saltai. Sorry, it's saltai reclamation. Red and green are basically the same color. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty tough to fit Wilderness Wreck into a deck with no green. I don't want to be that guy, but I also we'll get we'll get letters. So well it, it's
1: important. It's important to, to be to be accurate. We rarely do that. I'm actually surprised at that. Yeah. So some takeaways. Amulet Titan looks kinda back. Like after not being around too much, or I think seeing more of the Selesnia Titan style decks. Seven of our top 96 decks of the three events were just straight up Amulet Titan. There's just, you know, some new tools and Dryad of the Elysian Grove is still a, a busted card in this strategy. So keep your eyes peeled. If the, the Titan people always want Titan
0: to be good, and if it's good, they're going to win with it. And if that starts happening, pack your Ashioks. Stop shaving on Ashiok. Don't shave the Ashioks.
1: Four-color Uro and omneth piles seem to remain great options. Like, it's really the most popular deck of the weekend, for sure. I mean, there was twice as many of those style of decks than even Amulet Titan. 14 of the top 96 were these, you know, Uro piles.
2: People must think that Amulet's good against these piles, four-color Uro pile. I can't imagine why else people would be playing it unless they're playing Amulet, unless they thought it had a decent matchup against something that everybody knows is really prevalent right now in the metagame. What do you guys think about that? I'm kind of surprised that people would think that
1: personally, but I'm, I'm really bad at like sort of off the cuff pontificating. Like, like I know like this deck has a good matchup against this deck. Cause it's like, it's really hard. I think unless you're good at both of them or really good at one of them and like can, you know, assess all your matchups really well. But Stan, what do you think?
0: I think Amulet Titan gets to run Cavern of Souls, which is pretty strong against a deck full of
2: counterspells. There you go. Just a hunch. And that's the kind of insights that we keep staying on the show for. Shane goes, why are you asking me? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, why are you asking
1: me, Dave? I don't play either of these decks. <laughs> I mean, I have played i have played some Omnith in, in Pioneer, and I like it there, but it's a very different deck.
0: Yeah, not only that, but let's not forget that Amulet can grab Boggs pretty good against Uro. I think that's key. And also, Amulet Titan is like a combo deck. And Uro is a pretty, if you can like turbo out of Pajuka Bog and have Cavern of Souls to protect you from counter magic, you're just going to win before Uro can do anything.
2: Total off the cuff, but. Right on. Bada bing. One thing I would say about this Char Belcher deck that we saw too from Vagabond 87, not to go back one second, is it's a blue version. Of the deck, it's not the kind of like red green one Ironcrag Feet. It's a th- it's got Thassa's Oracle main. It's got a whole bunch of blue cards to do all kinds of different stuff. If you would like to do it, such as Selective Memory, a card from Zendikar. Search your library for any number of non land cards and exile them, then shuffle your library. There's some wild stuff going on in this build. Sweet. There's all there. So to go in with Shane's diversity point, there's all kinds of weird stuff going on in Modern right now. Get get in the water's fine. Sometimes you die on turn one right now, but that's okay. There's a lot of variety, just a lot like a lot of ways to win uh,
1: in in this uh, in this format. I guess
2: yeah, I don't know.
1: But most importantly, Mono White Taxes gets three decks in these top eights, two in a single top eight. Actually, of the three that we talked about, those are all top eights. Nothing else below top eight. It's a perfect deck. Doesn't need to be in the dregs. Of these challenges.
0: Well, two of them was the same pilot, so maybe it has more to do with the player than the deck.
1: No, the deck's perfect. It's
0: powerful.
2: (laughs) It's the most powerful color in modern. And stay with us to find out why.
1: Stan and Dave, we're back. I, I have to ask, what's up with death and taxes? Like, why... Why have people, people have tried for so long, so strongly to make this deck a thing, and it's always been a thing. It's like, it's, it's, it's even more than Merfolk to me. It's been that deck that people have championed and have won with now and then, and has always been in the, the periphery of the format. But now I feel like it's, it's back. It's a thing. It's in our faces. What's up?
0: You know, prior to playing this deck, I've, uh... I've, in my 31 years on earth, going on 32, I've never once done my taxes.
1: You haven't done your personal taxes,
0: like your single W-2. Yeah, no.
1: Like just slam it into TurboTax or the
0: free online filing. Uh, my mom's an accountant. She just offers to do it for me.
1: Your your mom's time is much more valuable. I know, but I'm a, I'm a good boy. Good, good boy. I love that Shane is like a, annoyed <laughs> yeah. about this. I can't believe your mom would help you. <laughs> You would ask your mom's your mom's valuable time. You think I I don't
0: even have to ask? She just
1: tells. Just like she's like Stanislav, give me your W two.
0: Yeah, and come like February or March, she'll be like, "Here, sign this document,
2: sign this power of attorney."
0: Yeah, I mean that's why she's been in all of our founders meetings. I
2: did give her all all the rights. You gave her points? Did you give her gross points or net points? Oh man, I gave her residuals. All right, look, Shane. I think you have a good question though. People have been trying to make taxes, decks, a thing in modern for a long time, a long, long time, probably since the printing of Thalia, Guardian of Thraben. And I don't even know if death and taxes existed in Legacy before uh, Thalia, Garden of Guardian of Thraben was printed. And that's Dark Ascension, right? She was in Dark Ascension. That's true. So that's... I knew that. I knew yeah. something. Yeah. Good, good work. Um, so why do people want this? deck to work in modern. I think it's an interesting thing to talk about for a minute. Uh, One thing that I thought about when we were starting to think about this deck and think about how to talk about it is its relationship to a really well-established legacy archetype. Um, Death and taxes at different points in time and legacy is really good. You know, it's at the top of the metagame. It's got a lot of tools. And I think that there's people who look at those lists and kind of go is so close to something that i could play in modern you know aether vile is played in it in legacy it could be it is played in, it in modern as well those are that's one of the powerhouse cards so i think people have thought for a long time about how to port that over from legacy to modern in lots of different ways um i think people want it because we don't really have a white weenie deck in modern realistically speaking and that's kind of what this is too you know it's cheap disruptive creatures hate bears if you will that can do some attacking and also do some disrupting at the same time i think that's a pretty good point for why people might want a deck like this not even a lot of mono white decks floating around in modern as it is anyway unless you're talking heliod devotion kind of stuff which is not always mono mono white stan any other thought anybody else have any other thoughts about why people might really want this archetype to work to be a thing in modern
0: i think sometimes you pick up taxes because you're tired of losing to control and uh, anytime I've played Blue Moon, various versions of Azorius or Jeskai, whenever I get paired up against taxes, it is a big problem. Huge.
2: Interesting. and We will have to talk about that a little bit later when we talk about some matchups. But I think before we get into our typical kind of anatomy of a deck, talking about what cards are in it, why they're there, stuff like that, I wanted to to linger a little bit on the legacy archetype here and talk about what this deck or this style of deck is really trying to do. I took a lot of notes for this particular part of the, the cast from an article written by Riley Knight on channel fireball last year. That was an intro to a death and taxes. I think it's called legacy level zero is the name of the series that he was working on then. And it's a nice little primer about legacy and why taxes is a good deck in legacy. But the way that he describes a deck is that it's a disruptive deck that can attack as well at the same time while it's putting disruption down. So because the disruption comes from lands and creatures, it's cards you want to play anyway, you, you get a chance to kind of do this kind of uh, aggressive, pff, not prison-y, but uh, aggressive plan that makes it hard for your opponent to efficiently spend their mana. So you're spending your mana efficiently. You're trying to keep them from spending their mana efficiently at the same time. Many of the cards in the Legacy version are familiar to Modern players you know aether vials in the legacy version the stoneforge mystic plan is in the is in the legacy version even which is really interesting there's not a ton of decks at this point legacy that run stoneforge mystic thalia garden of thraben is in there and even flicker wisp is a four of in most of the lists that i saw a in legacy drop. as well yeah a three drop in legacy imagine that now legacy has stuff like you know a lot of non-modern legal cards as well things like Uh, Wasteland and Rashad and Port, for example, which are two of the most powerful lands ever printed. Uh, Little known fact, Rashad and Port is actually one of the cards that got me to quit playing magic the first time (laughs) I quit playing magic uh, during Mercadian Masks because that card was like $75 a piece when it was in standard. It was absurd back in 2001. Legacy
0: also runs Umazawa's Jite.
2: Yes, they get to run Jitae as the package, which is really good as well. They get to run things like Recruiter of the Guard, Sanctum Prelate, uh, Palace Jailer to be able to do like a monarch plan if they want. So there is a bunch of stuff that's in here that is not in the um, the modern version. But I think the big thing here is... Rashad and port and wasteland super efficient mana denial on your lands.
0: Yeah. The legacy version doesn't run lean and Arbiter cause it kind of doesn't have to the modern version makes DIY wastelands out of Arbiter and ghost quarter Um, instead, legacy just gets to run like recruiter and walking ballista and some of those other cards that Dave mentioned.
2: So for all that taxes has always kind of been on the fringe of modern, right? Like it's an archetype that we're all kind of familiar with, but it's not something you see every day or have seen every day until pretty recently. Right. I mean, but that's not for lack of trying. Um, disruptive decks like this I think they have to be very well suited to their environments and for me I think the core of this deck never lined up exactly with what modern was trying to do I think it's one of those decks like Delver in some ways where people are always trying to make Delver happen in modern but because we don't have as cheap of disruption as legacy does the deck just doesn't work the same way And I feel sort of the same way about taxes up until this most recent era because of a couple of cards that were printed uh, that helped this deck out quite a bit. But it's that cost delta that made the stuff that's really efficient as far as disruption goes in Legacy just not really work as well. Because, like Stan said, to make Ghost Quarter into Wasteland... You have to have or strip mine, really, honestly, you have to have Arbiter out in play and you have to play it at the right time and you have to be doing other stuff to make sure that it works. So it does require some setup, but it also requires a little bit of like more nuanced play out of Ghost Quarter than it does out of Wasteland.
1: I mean, it just is kind of one of the major issues that I have had with these style decks is like they are highly synergistic, you know what I mean? Like I think that's what you're kind of saying. Where like it's 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 not only synergistic with the the pieces that are in the deck; it's also the timing of the pieces as well. And so, the legacy version has a little bit less of that when you don't have, like you say you don't have to you know build your own kind of wasteland or build your own strip mine, you can just sort of play cards that are more individually good. And I think that's something that I definitely want to loop back to when, as we talk about this style of deck and and the build of the deck as it exists is how do, how do we take all these sort of white weenie style cards and turn them into what is approaching um, a top tier deck
2: in the format? Yeah. So that core of Thalia, Ghost Quarter, and Arbiter, like we said, it's been around at Modern for a while. Notably, the decks that I feel like have been with it in the last four or five years have been Black White Eldrazi, also known as Eldrazi in taxes. And then slightly later, like last year, there was a deck floating around known as Thalia Stompy and even some Hate Bears decks that people have tried to play over the years that really are just about um, disruptive creatures without trying to get any beaters into it like the Eldrazi decks do.
1: Yeah, I remember like green white was like a popular one like very early on. I think even before I was playing modern in mm-hmm. like twenty six, early twenty seventeen. Yeah, no, not twenty seventeen, twenty fifteen. Yeah, twenty fifteen oh or gosh. fourteen. Yeah, exactly. A little bit, a little bit longer.
2: Yeah. And they always were kind of there. I mean, black and white, uh, black and white taxes was kind of the one that was around the most, I would say. And the thing that's interesting about the black and white taxes decks is that they rely on a hand disruption package in addition to the land disruption package and the mana taxing package that this deck kind of has. So what happens is, you know, you kind of get the cards that we talked about making it in this deck. And then the core of this deck also adds Tide Hollow Sculler and Thought Not Seer. You know, and so it has a bit more flickering because it also uses Eldrazi Displacer. It has some creature kill out of Wasteland Strangler. And so what you do is that, you know, it has mana uh, acceleration disruption from the lands. It has hand disruption from the uh, kind of the cards that take cards away, like Thought, Nut Seer and um, Tide Hollow Scholar. But the thing that we haven't talked about much is the mana acceleration that's in this deck to kind of make your hands better. And one thing that this deck had, this built has, is that it has a package of Aether Vial. But also one of the big incentives of why to play Eldrazi in this deck is that you get to play a Soul Land, which is actually kind of rare in modern. You get to use Eldrazi Temple to power out. Your Thought Not Seers, your Displacers, your Stranglers, and occasionally in decks like this, even Reality Smasher would show up as like the top of the curve. And so it kind of has this way of pushing itself ahead a little bit on resources, holding you back a little bit on resources, and hoping that's enough to kind of just get there. This was a fringe deck over the years, but it popped up somewhat frequently back in like 2018 and 2019. And quite often, it was thanks to the piloting skills of one dedicated Moto player with a screen name Peanuts, which Shane name checked a little bit earlier. So Peanuts is an interesting player in the sense that uh, I'm not sure if they were a well-known paper player. But never knew their real name, but they have results on uh, MTG Goldfish going all the way back to 2016. From now to 2016, so five pages of results of prelims, challenges, leagues, all kinds of stuff. And every single one of their results is with black-white taxes or Aldrazian taxes, with the exception of a single five zero, which <laughs> is their first result, on 11-26-2016, so just about four years ago, with a white-green taxes build. I think that they go back before then, even, but I think that Goldfish only goes back to 2016, but...
1: Yeah, I definitely, I played this deck in paper. It's it's a tough one. It's really, it's, you know, a lot of triggers to try to stack correctly to, like, you know, flicker your Tide, hollers, tide Hollow Sculler correctly. You could, like, exile a card for free type thing. And, like, being like, uh, hey, uh, I, this is what I want to do, opponent. Okay, just let, let me make this happen. Yeah, let me,
2: I, let's just say that I ordered the triggers the right way. Yeah, this, this is this is FNM. This was actually just the third the third deck I bought, I think in, in modern. So I had, it's probably a little bit after that, but I had a core of decks that was basically like Jeskai, you know, blue, white control. Then I was a splinter twin player for a while. And then when splinter twin got banned, I was like, I can't play blue cards anymore. And so I ended up buying into this deck because I already had aether vials. And, uh, it's like Shane said, is not easy to pilot this thing. <laughs> and I don't think it's easy to pilot, the mono white taxes right now either, but we will get no. back to that later. All right. The other deck that kind of that has come up over the last couple of years is Thalia Stompy, which is a twist on the Eldrazi and Texas archetype that was popularized by a few different players, including Spider Space on Magic Online, who I believe actually was the person who is sort of credited with designing this deck. And another player who is kind of familiar to me who played this deck some is Tom Medvick, who is uh, known as a bit of an SCG grinder. And had some particular success with this deck in paper at the beginning of 2019, going on a really good run through some uh, SCG opens in modern, essentially. Uh, I think at least one top eight, a couple of classic top eights, that kind of that kind of thing. The thing that makes Thalia Stompy different from the Eldrazi and Taxes deck is that it loads up on a couple of extra things. It runs Reality Smasher. It runs more Broken Disruption or I would what I would call broken disruption in the sense that or absolute disruption, I guess, because it runs Chalice of the Void and then it runs a couple of other ways to cheat on mana, including Simeon Spirit Guide and Gemstone Cavern. So you get the kind of prisony package built into here with um, Simeon Spirit Guide and Gemstone Cavern letting you play two drops on turn one so that you can play your Arbiter on turn one. You can play Thalia on turn one. You can play Chalice of the Void on turn one. And in different situations, that would sometimes just let you lock your opponent out of the game. You know, if you can play an Arbiter on turn one to opponent that only has a fetch land or only has two fetch lands, it's going to be a while before they figure something out unless they get really lucky with those top decks. Um, So the idea of this deck was play one of those disruptive pieces on turn one, Try to mull pretty hard into it. I, when I played this deck, that was definitely what I was doing. And then sometimes you can play a Thought Not Seer on like turn two or turn three. Sometimes you can get out a turn three reality smasher. All of this is like stuff that just lets you get out really powerful cards earlier than you're supposed to. You sacrifice a lot of kind of card advantage to do that. But um, you can definitely make up for for it on the virtual card advantage side by locking people out of stuff. Yeah. At some point
0: later on in the white taxes conversation, I'd love to hear you, Dave, sort of reflect on how you felt playing the newer version compared to Thalia Stompy, because I recall when Thalia Stompy came out, you were really into that deck and were like doing casual leagues with it.
2: Well, I got a trophy with, I even got a five o with it actually, which was pretty, pretty wild. So I think that, you know, people have been trying to make decks like this work for a while, but something kind of big happened with with zendikar really coming out and so why don't we talk a little bit about what has changed about this deck over the last four or five weeks
0: i agree words for you skyclave archon sky mall sky mall is is one word maybe it's hyphenated <laughs> i mean we talked about this a little bit in the past and i i may have even done a sleep believe heave on this if memory serves What is time? Uh, Skyclave Apparition. I think that was the the real big one that people kind of saw as like a nice on-plan main deck uh, versatile removal creature that can answer practically any
2: threat and can even provide some synergies with what the deck is already doing. Worth noting that Skyclave has been so good that it's really popular in Standard. It's also even made it into the Legacy version of this deck as well. So it's good enough to be in you know, more powerful formats, even than modern. Yeah. The card's incredible. I feel bad every time I, I, cause you know, I didn't give it a bad grade, but I feel bad every time I look at it, that it's not, wasn't quite as clear <laughs> as it actually, as it actually was. It's a little bit like the first time you read thought not seer and you, you realize that they don't get the card back, even though they get to draw a new card, you know, when, when it leaves and you're, it's kind of the same type of thing where you're like, Oh, they don't yeah. ever get this one back.
1: That's pretty good. Hey, I wrote a glowing review of this card in our set
2: review. You did. Yeah. Listen, if, if you didn't, no one else would have. No, never. But it is a d- diverse set of cards that Stan talked about. Apparition is a new piece of removal. It's on plan. Archon is a new piece of disruption that's already on plan. And Sky Mall is just a new, great kind of like extra dimension to the Stoneforge Mystic Package. And so that helped add a lot of different dimensions to the deck and definitely incentivize people to want to play around with it. And also, I think, you know, helped it give it a boost in power. And I think the other thing that's going on right now is that decks that can disrupt mana right now are, are, I think, are good at the moment because of all the different land payoffs that people are playing right now. So Ghost Quarter, I think, is a little extra good at the moment. Field of Ruin, I think, is a little extra good at the moment. Um, Arbiter, I think, is a little extra good at the moment in the sense that there are so many decks, even more decks than usual, relying on different ways to search their their library that I think you get a little bit of extra value off of those. And so all of those things are are things that Taxes is uniquely suited to combat. Um, not always sure how effective it is in every single one of those matchups, but I do think it's an it's a dimension that is in the format at moment. I wanna
0: not write the second, but I'm gonna try to revisit your point that Taxes is uniquely suited to combat decks with powerful lands because I may I may have a little bit of umbrage, but we'll get to that.
2: Maybe by uniquely suited, I mean mechanically uniquely suited. It's not necessarily the best at it, right? It, but, right. It, it's it's yeah. not doing
0: it with spell slots per se. It's doing it with its land.
2: Yeah, it
1: makes me think about a little bit what I said earlier, which is like I never really knew a time when like you could really say something like taxes is so good right now. Because, like, it always just sort of felt like the deck that just, like, like you kind of hinted at this, Dave, I think, which is, like, you are trying to disrupt a game plan and you have to get the right cards online to do that. Like, you sort of have to have the right pieces to line up against what's happening in the format in order to provide meaningful enough disruption that you can get through with your small creatures. Because it's not like humans, which is like a somewhat disruptive small creature deck with Aether Vile and good mana, just like mono white taxes or like black and white taxes, or Zav or Selesnia. But you don't have ramp. I think maybe the old Selesnia build did run noble, but you don't really have a good way to make your creatures into legitimate threats. And so like the question to me that I want to answer in this episode, and I think we will, is like, do these new additions do something better in this deck than they do elsewhere? Or are they just adding so much to the inherent plan of the deck that it makes it a stronger platform to be winning from? You know what I'm saying? Like,
2: are they... Are they good in this deck or are they just good mm-hmm. right well we now know it's Shane's quest what he what achievement he's trying to unlock on this episode i to get that triforce of skyclave archon and skymall stan what are you trying to unlock in this episode
0: is is stoneforge really the best finisher that we can play in this deck I, I, you know what i'm trying to unlock is whether or not like we've actually tapped into the best version of taxes or if we've just kind of settled on a passable version of taxes because i think Your point about its rich history and the different ways people have built it, in playing it, I didn't leave with a strong conviction that we finally unlocked the taxes deck as it's meant to be. Like, it's not this perfect, elegant construction the way Tron is. You know what I mean? So that's kind of like what I want to talk to you guys about. Can we actually maybe do better? Because there's something powerful happening here, but... I think maybe we can min-max a little bit and find potentially alternative options to, to make the deck even stronger.
2: And I guess I'm trying to unlock, when am I supposed to strip mine people? That's the question that always came up for me. <laughs> but anyway, we've danced around it a little bit. Let's get into the, the nitty-gritty of what the plan of this deck is, how the cards fit together, and do our, our kind of like normal dive-down anatomy of a deck. Section. Uh, one thing I will say quickly is that, you know, we organize these these anatomy of a decks in lots of different ways. And just wanted to mention before Stan hops in that this one is organized kind of by time of the game. So Mm -hmm. we decided that this one, the best way to talk about it was early, mid and late game and how the different cards line up in those situations instead of going by creature type or going by, you know, card type or something like that or different functional packages. We're thinking about it as progression through the game on this one. And and why did you think about it that way, Stan? I,
0: I think because this deck has super powerful one, two and three drops that aren't always great on turns one, two, or three. And that was one of the things that I had to really unlock as I was playing it, was figuring out, kind of to Dave's point, like, when am I strip mining people, but when am I playing Stoneforge? And what's my best turn one play when I have really powerful options uh, at, in my hand, in some cases? So what I really wanted to do as we kind of talk about the deck's plan is sort of imagine, like, the different um, decision trees that you sometimes have to take based on what, options are actually before you in a given game. Um, And that's that's what I'll try to do. So let's just kick it off. Turn one. This deck has two super powerful turn one plays. So just to get the ball rolling, from a high level perspective, this is kind of how I see this deck. I basically see it as mana advantage dot deck. In both trying to accumulate a little bit more resources to tap into on its own by leveraging the power of Aether Vile, but also squeezing the resources that opponents have access to by either uh, creating board states where they have to pay extra for spells, or creating board states where they can't even access their lands, or they're going down on lands in some cases. Mm-hmm. It plays pretty mid-rangey, um, though in my experience it feels closer to Ponza than Jund far as mid-range strategies goes, because it ultimately interacts and squeezes opponents' resources. Like it's it's targeting opponents' lands. In some cases it's targeting opponents' spells. Um because of Thalia.
2: Yeah, it's interesting. It's it might not be mid it might not bring along all the stuff that being a mid-range deck implies. Right? Like, like, we're not trying to st- This might be one of those discussions too about uh, virtual card advantage versus real card advantage, right? Where this deck tries to acquire virtual card advantage by keeping your opponent from doing things, making it harder for them to do things. Where a deck like Jund tries to get two for ones with like Coligan's command and stuff like that.
0: Yeah. And in, in ah. a similar vein as Ponza, I think Taxes is really good at punishing decks with greedy mana bases or, or even ramp strategies for that matter um, unlike ponza it's an aether Vial deck so it really relies on creatures to do a lot of that heavy lifting um, and instead of blood moon and pillage it's just using lean and arbiter or thalia or ghost quarters uh, and that's kind of what i alluded to earlier where it gets to do these powerful things with its land slots rather than Devoting any space to spells. Uh, so, if nothing else, sometimes these cards have excellent fail states. Whereas, like, if your pawns are playing against Mono Red, that Blood Moon looks pretty bad in your hand. Gets a little bit of that man advantage from Aether Vials, uh, but then it also has powerful closers, thanks to Stoneforge Mystic. Um, so, it disrupts a little early, and then eventually, um, depending on the game, it tries to turn that corner. Stoneforge is a great way to do it. It's got other tools to. To swing and and close out games. But I think Stoneforge is like the biggest beater or enables the biggest beatdowns.
2: Yeah. I mean, one other thing that we should note about this deck that you'll talk about later is that it just has access to different removal, too. Like Ponza has access to Lightning Bolt, Taxes has access to Path to Exile. Yes. You know, and so that leads to different decisions as well and different times and different matchups where those cards are better than each other. Right.
0: Panza has glory bringer and this has skyclave apparition
2: exactly <laughs> yeah
0: um so we'll talk in more detail about like what the deck is trying to do and and kind of as day foreshadowed sort of like the sequence of the game but i'm always curious how did you guys actually feel playing this deck we've played so many modern decks did you like it dislike it give me some give me some hints into what was happening in your head I just
2: felt really clumsy playing it to when I was doing it. You know, I played this through two leagues uh, and it was, it was rough going a little bit, even having some experience playing Thalia Stompy and um, black and white taxes. This definitely felt a lot closer to black and white taxes to me. The um, Thalia Stompy deck, since you mentioned this earlier, Stan, you wanted a little compare and contrast. I think Thalia Stompy has a really clear plan. It's like, you better hope that your disruption is going to win the game for you because you put so many resources into making it happen that hopefully that get buys you enough time to get a reality smasher out. And then you just kill them with it. Like that's a lot more clear than to me anyway, than this deck or um, black and white taxes, which are much more about the kind of interesting and, and, and like, um, timing and tempo-y kind of stuff that you can do with Aether Vile, enabling creatures to have flash that never, that didn't have flash before and stuff like that. It's a lot of tricky kind of trigger stacking interactions. So there's a lot to that in this deck that I didn't quite have. I also was a little bit um, unsure about like mulling with this deck because of that, because I wasn't quite sure what my plan was supposed to be like, like you mentioned, Stan, you know, Stoneforge is a really unique way to close out a game. Like it's got its own kind of thing going on. And one of the big things about Stoneforge is like, it ends up in a lot of decks where you feel like you're supposed to play it on turn two, but I often think you're not supposed to play it on turn two, unless you really know the coast is clear, you know? So just some stuff to think about there.
1: Yeah. I felt the same way, Dave, which is like, this is, this is like a, resource advantage deck where like you're slipping in these jabs and trying to take maybe to the sky to finish things off or like sort of brute forcing it through with like batter skull and so i feel like it's really easy for newer players to the deck like i would consider myself to like have no real idea like how how i'm how i'm maximizing these fairly low value tools i have access to in this deck right like it's tempting to compare this to humans in a way, right? Where it's like, Hey, I have some one, two, three cost things. I have aether vial. My mana is going to let me cast what I want to almost all the time. So it's really about my creature sequencing and getting the job done. But humans is a, is a, is a like disruptive aggro deck. And this is a disruptive, like weenie deck which is a very weird combination of factors to me and so like i feel like the best plays were where i got like two or three for ones and that might be in mana denial or it might be in like blinking my stoneforge mystic with like a flicker whisk. like just like you know the easiest stuff right which is like how do i maximize this thing that i paid two mana for or viled in on two, or viled in on three to to get more value out of it than my opponent's doing in the same amount of time. But at the same time, it's like you're not closing the game extremely quickly most of the time. So it's like, it's a real weird balance of factors and not a lot of things play like it, in my opinion.
0: So my biggest issue I felt with this deck was it's really hard to pick a good opener sometimes in game one. And it really relies on you to make excellent decisions in games two and three to kind of like make up for perhaps like just having the absolutely wrong play um, or the wrong having the absolute wrong plan in game one. And like this is the type of deck where depending on what your opponent is doing, you can potentially pivot Um, or depending on like what you draw with your opening seven, you'll have like a specific plan or path that depending on the matchup it's just like dead wrong um so for instance like you might have a a opener that's like two lands a ghost quarterly and an arbiter and thalia and you're like oh yes this is it and then you're playing against humans and it's like oh maybe this is actually horrible or alternatively you might have a hand that's like aether vile and um stoneforge mystic and giver of ruins and you play against like
2: mono blue tron (laughs) and it's like I'm not sure this is going to cut it. Um, so... Yeah, I mean, one thing that was interesting about Thalia Stompy is that it didn't have Aether Vial in it because it had Chalice instead. So you were pretty clear. That kind of cut off one of the whole lines of plans that you could multi, to, right? Where it's just like, well, I'm never going to multi to that mana advantage. I'm just going to multi to Disruption. And so that made it a little bit easier. I think this one, there's just so many options and I even, I watched spider space play this a little bit online. And some of the keep mall decisions were very interesting. I watched after I had played uh, the two leagues that I did and I was like, wow, they, yeah, spider space didn't keep any hands like what you described, Stan, where it was kind of like lands and arbiter and, uh, and Thalia, like didn't, didn't even keep that hand because it, it didn't do enough powerful things basically. I think,
0: Right. I I think the cool thing about this deck and why I kind of like generally like it or appreciate it is because it's the type of strategy that can just like punish and abuse its opponents when it's going off. And it's like when you're behind against taxes, it's just it's that's a little humiliating because you just feel like you can't do anything. And they just like are stringing you along while they very slowly win the game, yeah.
2: Almo- almost like control in that way. I'm dying to a 3-1, and it's not even Vendillion Click? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) All right, so let's talk a little bit
0: about, like, how the deck actually plays out. Starting with the early game, turn 1. We mentioned Aether Vial, obviously super powerful turn 1 play, but it also has Giver of Ruins. And I think if you have an opener with both of these in your hand, deciding which to lead with is a little contextual and, and ultimately based on, like, what else is in your hand. Which might be obvious, but... Some examples that I was able to come up with that are not atypical. I love playing Giver of Ruins over a turn one Aether Vial if I feel like I have a super powerful turn two spell that I need to protect. Something like Thalia or Arbiter, where if left unchecked, can just run
2: away with the game, especially in certain matchups. Yeah, absolutely. I had multiple games that I remember where I ended up just sitting with Aether Vial in my hand and like... Looking back, I'm not sure that was the right decision, but it sure feels hard to say no when it's kind of like it feels like this is what these cards are here to do. Mm -hmm. They're here for me to drop my giver runes and then play uh, Arbiter. And then you have to use two removal spells to kill it. And you only have one one land. So what what are you going to do? Yeah. And I feel like
0: Arbiter and, and Thalia, they pack the most punch on turns two and three. And even though. I've heard a lot of people play just say always lead with um, the vile and, and maybe that's right in some d- other vile decks, like maybe humans. I'll be curious to hear what Chain thinks about like maybe some vile heuristics in humans. But I think sometimes Arbiter feels like a dog instead of a cat. If you play it too late, when opponents like have had that time to like get enough resources to actually like fetch or get enough resources to maybe like spend two mana on their path to exile or whatever.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Shane. I mean, how, how do you sequence it in, in humans generally? I mean, are you dropping champion or are you dropping vile?
1: I mean, it's just, it. it's, this deck is not the same as that. Do you know what I mean? It's like, like giver of runes is like when I have giver and stoneforge mystic in my hand, it's like, well, you know, what a great day. <laughs> yeah, I get, I get. that's like it's one of my favorite one, two things I think you can do. And I don't even really care about Stoneforge Mystic that much. But just having that the built in protection in that setup is so nice
2: for sure. Yeah, I will say that when I had Giver Stoneforge and Aether Vial, for example, and like Skyclave Apparition and a few lands, let's say I if I kept at hand, I, I would lead with the vial in that particular thing because I'm not trying to get disruption online. Like I think that the turn one giver is all about getting turn two disruption. Aether Vial is about getting ready for the mid game and also you don't have if you're not going to rush out to try to disrupt somebody early. Now, those kind of hands, I'm not sure you're supposed to keep them or not, but um you know, ones without really heavy disruption. But definitely, that's the way that I would game plan it, because I don't want to drop Stoneforge Mystic on turn two most times, I don't think.
0: Yeah. Speaking of turn two Stoneforge, one of the places or situations where I I actively like my turn one Vile is if I know I'm going to cast three drops in this game. Like, if my opening mm-hmm. hand has Vile and and an Archon or a Skyclave um, or a Flicker Wisp that's when I feel like it's a little bit more important to lead with that vial. Also worth noting a turn one vial, um, two lands and two creatures can potentially let you cast two creatures on turn two. Like if you have uh, a one drop and a two drop. Exactly. So like um, giver and stoneforge, I actually love that on turn two personally uh, in part because I don't think stoneforge is as important to protect as nearly any of the other creatures or any of the other creatures in this deck
2: yeah it just depends on what your plan is going to be but the um yeah i think that the point about this deck is weird in the sense that aether vial is really really good with the three drops in this deck you really want to have a vial on three to make flicker wisp awesome and to make skyclave apparition awesome in a lot of the games, and so I feel like it 's kind of different it 's definitely very different from the way humans use vile in that sense, or the way Murfolk uses vile because they 're not trying to be as tricky i don 't think like yeah, just trying to like get stuff onto the board, yeah, I had a really fun game where I played a Leon and arbiter with a giver of runes out. Someone got ahead enough to be able to fetch, and I viled in a second Leon and arbiter while the <laughs> while they were trying to do stuff, and it was like. Sorry, you still you don't get to fetch still, <laughs> or did similar things with you know viling in a um what's the bird one archon that I'm suddenly forgetting the name no the the bird that lets you only search the top four cards of your library Aven
0: mind sensor
2: yeah does it have flash on
1: it already though it does but if you don't have oh, the but mana, you don't have the mana yeah
2: yeah so I would I had post board games where I would have arbiter out and then they would try to kill arbiter and I would flash in. The Aven Mind Sensor kind of stuff too, so you can do stuff like that in the game in the middle of the game that helps you. But um, it's definitely all about making Skyclave and and wisp as good as possible. I think in this deck,
0: I will say I think the mid range is where this deck really shines because your your first turn or two you kind of like set up your plan. Your turns two through four is where you really start to execute on it. It's not an exceptionally fast deck in my opinion, um, but. I think this is where you kind of set the foundation that will hopefully let you win depending on the matchup. So let's start looking at the two drops. Lean and Arbiter, we've been mentioning it. You you very well might know what it does. If you don't, it's a 2-2 two, two for one and a white. Players can't search their libraries, and that's symmetrical. But any player can pay two to ignore this effect until end of turn, and that ignore effect is asymmetrical. So each right. player would have to pay the tax to fetch in, in one turn.
2: Yeah. This is the card that people talk about with this deck that I think most people expected to be the thing that was keeping this deck from getting bigger. Right. Like people were often like, well, there's only four arbiter effects. So taxes is never going to get there in modern because your ghost quarters and your field of ruins aren't going to be wastelands enough. It's kind of like the line of logic that goes goes there. Because it's super important to the deck. Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned that because I feel like that's...
0: Once we get extra copies of this card in Modern Horizons 2 is when, like, taxes can be a real, real legacy-level powerhouse in Modern, just because... I feel like in some games this is, this is absolutely your best card. And you actively want to mulligan to it in games 2 and 3 when you know the matchup.
2: Yeah. It's tough. I mean, this is a tough card to play with. Like, because of... Figuring out how to how and when to expose it to removal, figuring out how and when you want it down so that it doesn't screw you over and only really causes problems for your opponent. Remembering the timing of how to make it work like you have to pay on moto. You know, Stan has in big bold letters here in our show notes. It says magic online tip to pay arbiter's tax. (laughs) You have to click him and pay two before you do anything. This is a, there's no trigger on Magic there's Online no for this for that's this thing. thing. So there's no response where you get to pay for the the tax that's on it. You have to do it preemptively, and people forget to do it all the time. And the first couple of times you play this deck, you'll probably forget to do it too when you want to play a Stoneforge Mystic or something like that. Uh, we'll talk about that more in a second. But you know, it's kind of a poorly designed card mechanically in that sense because it leads to bad bad feelings. But um it's a really powerful card in this deck. And I don't think that this deck could totally exist without it, you know, definitely not with the strategy that it has anyway. But um, I also think it's somewhat unlikely that we'll get more of these Stan. I guess we'll see what happens. Maybe there'll be another disruptive white creature that makes searching harder, like a cheaper even mind sensor kind of thing or something like that. But a powerful card
1: the the main thing that i feel like makes this so good even more than something like an aven mind sensor is the the heavy tax like like stan has been hinting at and overtly saying like it some of these cards are better early and get worth and get much less valuable later and the yonan know, arbiter has that fairly short window because of like the you know the pay 2 and so like it's both a tempo disruption and a mana disruption card because like it prevents the opponent from fetching like without paying. So they can't use the mana on that turn. And sometimes outright just gets people and makes their lands worthless. And so that's really why Leon and Arbiter can be so good, but then the opportunity can close so quickly because it just doesn't scale.
2: Like, like a lot of these creatures don't, they don't scale very well. Yeah. I mean, it, Against an opponent that has a lot of fetches, like I mentioned, it can just turn their deck off. Like, this card can just turn their deck off if you play it. Uh, you know, If you have it on the play, for example, and someone only has one fetch down and doesn't have another regular land in their hand, like, that's just kind of it for a while until they get lucky. Um, it also turns Path to Exile into a card that's better than than Swords to Plowshares. <laughs> you know, it turns Ghost Quarter into Strip Mine. Like even better than Wasteland, and it turns Field of Ruin into a really good card in the sense that um, if you maneuver it right, you can go get the land, and they can't. It takes a lot of mana to do that, but uh, you can make it happen. So the only thing that you have to really, really watch out, and one thing that people thought, you know, when Stoneforge Mystic was unbanned, people were like, Stoneforge is going to go right into taxes, taxes is going to get it good, da-da-da-da-da. It didn't happen quite directly, but a lot of people have talked about the anti-synergy between those two cards, You just have to be thoughtful about how you approach it, but you definitely have to remember to pay that tax before you play the Stoneforge Mystic if you're going to do that. All right, Lean and Arbiter, perplexing, confounding card. What's the next card in the Disruption Suite? Hold on, on, Thalia. I love you, Thalia. <laughs> you
1: she's the best. Thalia has such a legion of fans, I have found, in my years of playing Magic. Like I think a lot of people, sometimes their favorite creature or card in Magic is Thalia, Guardian of Thraben. Because what she does is pretty novel. Like She's one and a white for a two on first strike. Non-creature spells cost one more to cast. And this makes her an absolute must-remove from the battlefield for a bunch Of decks, right? Like, because a lot of decks in modern, as Dave is fond of saying, is is they capitalize on cheap, cheap casting costs, right? Cheap spells. So your ops, your Serum Visions, your Lightning Bolts, your Path to Exiles, your uh, whatever, your random early ramp spells, your you know all the stuff that you want to be doing early on with the years and years of cards in modern we have to choose from. If it's not a, if it's if it's a non creature, Thalia kills your tempo. You know your burn your burn deck wants to cast a, a lava spike and a lightning bolt. Too bad you only have mana for one thing, and it's and it's also pointing the lightning bolt at the Thalia instead of at your opponent's face. So it just. Makes a it's a big tempo hit. I
2: had a a burn matchup when I was in my leagues where the opponent was stuck on one land. Like it was game one, they were they had one land and they had one of those triple goblin guide openers. And I played a turn two Thalia, <laughs> and they were just like, I I don't know what to do now. And eventually, I just like managed to get there. But it was uh yeah, it was pretty interesting. I was like, you can't attack and you can't lightning bolt this, and we'll see you later. Yeah,
1: the first strike helps uh, like a surprising amount. Like it's, I mean, two power is not amazing as a two drop, but it still does trade or uh, offers a. It doesn't trade. It it can remove a two power creature on the other side of the battlefield. That makes blocking challenging. It makes attacking challenging at times. So, thought it gets the job done in a number of ways. First strike's awesome when you equip her up with things because it doesn't have to like Sky Skymall gives first strike if I remember correctly. Um, th- but uh, the other weapons don't. So it's like, yeah, great. Give me a, a batter skulled up Thalia with first strike, please. Quick question, Shane. Yeah.
0: She's a lot better on the play than the draw,
1: right? Yeah. It's like an Eidolon type thing, right? Where it's like, you want, you want to be stealing tempo and it's a lot harder to steal tempo on the draw, I mean, it's a lot harder to steal tempo on the draw. I think with a number of decks in Magic, just because of the advantage that the player on the play really does have. Um, but Thalia is in particular one of those things where it's like you can think about shaving her in certain matchups on the draw because she's just not going to do enough for you as a two drop in the deck. Uh, much like you might shave some Eidolon of the Great Revel when you're playing like a red burn deck. If you have something better to come in, of course. Yeah, of course. Shane, I'm excited to talk, uh, talk about this next card because... I don't know this card. What What's
0: Stone... stone Stonefrage? F- forge. Stoneforge. Have you ever cast a Stoneforge before? Uh, this is an honest question. I, I wasn't sure if you had prior to playing this deck. Yes, I've I've cast Stoneforge Mystic, yeah. Not when you were gold fishing.
1: No, no, I've, I've kept, ca- we, I mean, like, remember we, I put like a Jess Jeskai, like Stoneblade deck. I've, I've played some Stoneforge. Cool. I've cast Stoneforge
0: in paper. Oh, she's awesome, isn't she?
1: Uh, I think she's exactly where she needs to be in modern in terms of power level.
0: So we all know what Stoneforge does. The equipment targets in the, this particular version of the deck, at least right now, Batterskull, of course, um, Sword of Fire and Ice, um and maul of the skyclave sometimes i see sort of light and shadow in the sideboard just because it can get creatures in this deck out of the graveyard um in a way that like other stoneforge decks aren't as well built to do um i don't see sort of feast and famine come up too often in taxes lately I'm not sure if you guys want to talk about why, but prevailing theory is just
2: like lack of counterspells makes it a little less good. You just don't need the mana. Is why like you? you it's, right. it's tough to have stuff to do with it, so it it doesn't really matter that much. Drawing a card off of Fire and Ice is pretty good in this deck, especially since this deck does struggle to get like real card advantage sometimes. So yeah, and as we
0: mentioned, even though she's technically a turn two play or playable on turn two, she's really important when you want to set up your eventual win condition, either by getting a batter skull or maybe just finding the right equipment for whatever creatures you are planning to kind of get you through the game. So if you need to like push through damage in a a matchup where you think there's going to be a lot of creatures on the board, you might get a Skyclave. If you're up against maybe a deck that, um, like if you have a flyer and you're up against the deck that's got a lot of creatures, you might grab Sword of Fire and Ice so you can start pointing that to at the creatures, try picking them off. Mm -hmm. I do think because she non-bows with Leon and Arbiter, I usually feel good holding her until later in the game if I'm leaning into the Leon and plan early.
2: Yeah, you just got to remember, remember with your brain yeah. that Leon and Arbiter is out there and don't play it
0: I mean, it, when he's out there. And for that reason, she's great to to play off of an Aether Vial because like you can keep a couple mana up, you pay the tax, the cat tax, you vial her in,
2: boom. There you go. Yeah, I mean, this tension, I think, is solvable. You just have to be very aware. Keep keep your head on straight while you're playing it. Let's talk about the three drops. Flicker
1: wisp. Oh, and this is where stuff gets real
2: interesting. I mean this this card is the one that gets real interesting. Yes,
1: flicker wisp. I mean, like, I'm just i I just had to jump in because flicker wisp is just such a weird card. It's so hard to be good at flicker Wisp. Wispin. Why don't you read what it does? Oh, man. Crap. Okay. One white white for a 3-1 flyer. That's really bad rate. Um, when an ETBs, exile another target permanent. Any permanent. Another. Not yours.
2: At the beginning of the next end step, return that card to the battlefield. This can do a lot of things. Yeah. This is one of those every single clause in a sentence card is meaningful and something you have to remember when you're playing <laughs> yeah. it.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's like... It, it's weird how Flicker Whisk can feel like it does nothing or does everything. Yeah. Like, and so like, you know, it's, it doesn't have flash, right? So you pretty much want your Aether Vial ticked up to three so you can do tricksy stuff with it. Like, so it's like a, it's, it can be tempo It's, it's like, it's like being able to flash on like a deputy of detention or something like that. Or mm-hmm. a reflector mage where it's like, oh man, this, this rules when I'm able to do it as a trick. But it, it's like, but then being able to eke out maximum value when it's even not a tricky tempo type play, I think is, or it separates the separates me from P-Nips. One of just a few things. It,
0: <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: what, what else can you guys tell me about Flicker Wisp?
0: It's practically a mainstay in taxes, right? Like Dave, when you went through your history lesson, did any of those decks not play Flicker Wisp?
2: Uh, Thalia Stompy does not play it. Polyastompy is more about other stuff, so it does not have Flicker Wisp yeah. in it. Double checking, right? Now, well, I mean, it has it has um, Eldrazi Displacer right. instead for some of that Blinky ability. And some decks I've seen actually have both sometimes. They have some number of Flicker Wisp and some number of Eldrazi Displacer. The black and white taxes decks would have both sometimes uh, because you really want to do tricksy things with Thought Not Seer and stuff like that if you have the mana. But. Um, yeah, it's is a mainstay. I think I and as I mentioned, it's even a four of in the legacy version of the deck, which was the thing that was the most mind-blowing to me. So as Shane read the text on the card,
0: it's not a permanent solution to most things that either your opponent's doing, but because of its synergy with Ithervile, something to note, when you flash it in during an end step, the permanent doesn't come back until the following end step. So where it can like feel a little bit underpowered if you're flashing it in during an upkeep or main phase, I think it starts to shine when you realize that you can actually buy a whole turn using Flicker Wisp, depending on how you sequence it.
2: Yeah, and you can even use it... So when you look at this card, you're like, oh, this seems terrible against like a Planeswalker, Walker, for example. But if you have the ability to... Flash it in at an end step so your opponent loses an entire turn with a, with their Planeswalker. That can be worth it to reset the loyalty, you know, if you're going to, you know, not have your guy bounced and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera kind of stuff. Um,
0: yeah, I mean, that also depends on whose Planeswalkers you're talking about. Because sometimes you flash it in and bounce your own Planeswalkers to save them from removal or creature combat. That feels pretty good.
2: And th- what Planeswalkers are we talking about in this deck? You
0: know, like your uh Dobin
2: Bon, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, Basri Cats, <laughs> I'm playing Basri Cat in my taxes deck. <laughs> um, I,
0: I, so it, it does hit any permanent, and I, I think that is relevant. Like, you know, if you need to get like a Karn out of the way before it ultimates, you can do that.
2: Um, if you need to. F- Flash out a piece of Tron right. so that they don't have Tron for a turn. Right. You can do that. Don't, don't do that. It's mean. <laughs> if you want to flash something of your own, if you want to get another card with Stoneforge Mystic, you can do that. If you want to get a blocker out of the way, you you can do that. I mean there's there's all kinds of things. I mean you can you can flicker wisp an Emrakul away. Yeah. You know? And you should like, <laughs> yes please consider doing it if you're in that situation you can reset counters on
0: an opposing aether vial you can reset counters on an opposing as foretold um and listen it also flies and this can't be overlooked because even though it's easy to kill flying makes it a serious threat and especially if you were to put like a sword of fire and ice on it if you have five extra mana and you put a batter skull on it that's that's just going to win you games
2: Yeah. So it really is, like I said, you know, the flying matters, the three, one matters, the exiling, any permanent matters. The fact that it goes away until the beginning of the next end step matters. Like all of those things are things that you need to keep in mind when you're trying to play with this card, because it is key to figuring out how to extend the disruption that you've created in the first couple of turns into the mid game in a way that maintains your advantage or gives you a chance to attack for the kill.
0: It has a nice little synergy with Skyclave Apparition, so we'll talk about Skyclave next, but let's say your opponent removes a Skyclave, they get a token, if you Wisp that token, it ain't coming back.
2: I mean, you can Wisp a token, you can flash in Wisp to save your Skyclave Apparition, so that yes, they get a token, but you get to get rid of another permanent of theirs when it comes back into play, so... There's uh, there's all kinds of stuff.
0: All right, let's talk about Skyclave. Early on... This is the
2: headline. This is supposed to be yeah. the big new card. We've saved it for the middle of this deck dive, <laughs> but...
0: Early in this season, I was gaga for Skyclave. I, I bought them early. I bought them cheap. One white, white for a 2-2 when it enters the battlefield. Exile target non-land permanent CMC4 or less when Skyclave leaves the battlefield. Dies, really. Um the exiled card's owner creates an XX blue why is it blue? Illusion token where X is the permanence CMC. Illusions are blue, Stan.
2: I guess. Just a thing. Yeah. Blue illusions. Michael. Illusions.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Michael, I blue illusioned myself. Exactly. So answering any permanent, I think, is just insane. This feels like the most powerful thing in white when you remove your opponent's Karn the Great Creator or when you remove their Ensnaring Bridge or their Renin Six.
2: Well, wait, 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 wait. You can't, oh, you can remove, a sorry, wrong Karn. I was like, you can't get rid of Karn. Karn the Great Creator, yes. Karn Liberated, no. Yeah. So that 4CMC that thing does matter quite a bit. You know, it's kind of like you got to keep your again, keep your head on straight when you're playing this card the same way that you do when you're playing Spell Queller. Just keep it. Just remember, like, it answers many, 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 many things in Modern, but you can't get rid of, you know, ramp cards that are really important to Exile, like uh, Worm Coil Engine or those kind of big payoff cards. Uh, Primeval Titan, you can't get with this card, but you can get lots of other stuff out of lots of other decks with it.
0: Yeah, and Urza, Karn, Scion of Urza, Most of the Karns even. Mm -hmm. I think this is also a great target for your swords. You know, this and Arbiter, sometimes Thalia, they just like gum up the board and they don't do anything. And blocking with this can feel a little awkward. But if you can grab a Skyclave, a Sofi, a Batterskull maybe, if you have five extra mana, that's... I mean, that's this deck isn't doing that very often, but, you know, stranger things have happened. This is the type of creature that I think is great as an attacker after you find an equipment for it.
2: Yeah. I think that's sort of one of the morals of the stone forge package is that part of the reason it works in this deck is because you have creatures that you want to have live and are very medium block, medium attackers on their own. But once you get them suited up, they can do do better. And so that's part of the reason it these to go together like peanut butter and jelly, even though stone forge is mm-hmm. awkward sometimes. How do you guys like your peanut but butter and jelly grilled? Well, see my mom used to put it in the microwave and then, <laughs> <laughs> she put Miracle Whip on it and put and sent it to me to school <laughs> oh, with it. God,
0: him. Dave, you're hurting me.
2: <laughs> I like I like really generic,
1: like childlike peanut butter and jellies, like smooth Skippy, and like some jelly on like potato bread, like the most garbage tier Wonder Bread and stuff. Hey, if you like Wonder Bread, not trying to yuck your yums, but we all know there's not a lot of grains in there, whole grains.
0: What's your jam? Peanut butter jelly jam proportion levels. Because I'm always a two to one. Oh, high jelly. What? I'm a high jelly boy. I quit. Yuck. Don't yuck my yums. One time I made a sandwich that was equal parts peanut butter and jelly, and I like threw it away. You got to have twice the peanut butter. I,
1: I I like I like candy, man. I like bubblegum and taffy. Oh God. Going to the sweet oh shop.
2: <sighs> uh, look couple of things from me here on peanut butter and jelly talk while we're here. Uh, I like chunky peanut butter for one thing. I'm always on the chunky side and I, I do like more than uh, more peanut butter than jelly. Uh, my children would really prefer that I don't put peanut butter on their sandwiches. Yeah. You just make them jelly sandwiches or just get, just give them a bowl of jelly. I caught my kid one time. He went and got the jelly, put it into a bowl and was just sitting and eating it with a spoon. Hey, it's fruit. Hmm. I think the US RDA would consider that a serving of fruit, my friend. Also, shout out to jam. Yes, I was gonna say I'm strawberry. I like strawberry the best. I'm a strawberry jam person.
0: Yeah, strawberry or raspberry jam.
1: What about snozberry? Sometimes if you get the right if you get the right one,
2: it tastes like real snozberries. Yeah, wonderful. No, you're not wrong. All right, Skyclave apparition. The jelly to our peanut butter. This card is just good. It's it's like we could talk about more about all the stuff that it gets and all the things you can do with it. But it just It answers a
0: lot of problems. Or it solves a lot of problems for this deck, ultimately.
2: Yeah, and I think that the, the huge thing here that we talked about when we spoiled this didn't spoil this card, when we reviewed this card is that it's one color. So unlike Deputy of Detention or Spell Queller or any of the other cards who have had effects somewhat similar to this that are available in modern. You don't have to extend into another color to play this and extending into another color is okay in taxes but you don't always want to do it and it's it's quite better when you just have a bunch of planes to play and you don't have to play a bunch of non-basic lands. So Skyclave apparition just being one white white, that I think that fundamentally is key to why this card is so popular and why it's made this deck a bit better as well. So we've talked
0: about all the parts of the sandwich uh, the final part, like the little olive in the toothpick sticking out of the top.
2: Of the peanut butter sandwich. Perfect.
0: Yeah, I think that's our kind of Amaria. Yeah. Two and a white for a 2-3 flyer. Players, symmetrical, cannot cast more than one spell per turn. Non-basic lands, opponent's control, enter the battlefield tapped. Started out as a sideboard card. Now it's making it to the main deck. I think this is very powerful in certain matchups. Uh... I still feel like it's kind of on the slow side. It's like weirdly the slowest three drop in this deck because it's, it's slow to tax. You can't ramp it out really. Um, but in the decks or the games where it carries the most weight, this to me feels a little bit like your extra copies of Thalia that are non-legendary and having this plus Thalia on the board feels like a, an advantageous position a lot.
2: Yeah. This card, I, I didn't really get to see it impressed, but I do think this is another one where, like, the fact that it's a decent flyer that can carry a sword is almost enough to have it earn its place in the main deck as some quantity. It's just not a lot of downside. The rate on this card, I think, is really, really good, considering that it sort of has two different kinds of disruption available on a single card. And again, you know, one of them is symmetrical, but we don't really care about we don't care too much about casting more than one spell a turn especially since we have aether vial and then you know having people not be able to ramp out i mean they can't fetch into a shock you know the fetch comes in tapped and the shock comes in tapped and there's nothing you can do about that so mm-hmm. uh it does it does help along a, a lot of different axes
1: i got to say if i don't if this didn't have flying i don't think it's a very good card like, I honestly don't really get why Thalia Heretic Cathar from Eldritch Moon isn't seeing play over this. Because one of the issues that I ran into is I want my opponent's creatures out of the way. Yes. So my little cruddy creatures can get in there. Or like my, my sorted up thing can get in there if it doesn't have the protection against the color my opponent's playing or something like that. Thalia Heretic Cathar... Makes my opponent's creatures come into play tapped as well, right? Along with her non basic lance, and it has first strike. So, all those things combined still have not made this into a card that almost
2: sees play, never see really never sees play like very rarely. So, that card was seeing play in black, white, stompy, and and, or sorry, Black White Taxes and Thalia Stompy as like a two of similar quantity to this. Sure, I think that the main thing that this card does that that one doesn't is it has it has kind of splash hate against prowess and storm, sure essentially. So any deck that's trying to cast a whole bunch of spells, abuse low mana costs, uh, play with Frexian mana, this this card gives you a little bit of an angle against that during game yeah. one. And also, you're right. If it didn't fly. I don't think it would make the the deck, really. It wouldn't be anywhere near as powerful.
1: It's one of your finishers. Because, like, I think the way that this deck frequently wins, or at least that I experienced it, was, like, I got some smaller damage in early, and then I wanted to take to the skies and have first have like first striking flyers that just like could chip in enough and like just, you know, force a chump block and then get in there for like five or six damage or something like that.
2: Right. Yeah. I think that is, that is what it does. It gets to do all three of those purposes.
0: Shane, for what it's worth, I am picking up what you're putting down. I had the exact same thought that like, why aren't we just playing the bigger Thalia here too? And I, I, like, I think Dave makes a good point about like, how good this is against prowess. Um, and you made like probably the definitive point that flying is the thing that gives this card its edge over Big Thalia because that just seems like a shoe in and there's a reason that was in taxes once upon a time and I would not be surprised to see that reappear in future versions of taxes depending on how this deck evolves.
2: Yeah, I mean, if there was a lot more burn, let's say, where you were like, oh, I'm going to face off against goblin guides and and creatures that have haste, essentially, for some reason, like something where you really get a lot out of the creatures coming in tapped, even when you're not attacking quite yet. I think that you might get a little, you might switch back to something like that. I mean, isn't
1: like Thalia three, isn't she better against like something, let's say like Rakdos shadow. Do you mean like where it's like, I'm I'm making your creatures come into play tapped. I'm making them get out of the way. And so I can get my
2: creatures in there. Maybe I'm wrong. I think that one, I think the one turn per spell tax is still too good. Yeah. The one spell thing. Yeah. Yeah. One spell per, per turn thing.
0: Yeah. One thing I'm curious about is whether amulet of vigor gets around our kind of a I've put in a question to our official judge, judge Jack of the dive down nation to find out. I'll report back as soon as I hear from him.
2: Hopefully he's still awake. Hmm. Well, well, we'll follow up on that in real time. All right. So let's talk about some of the functional packages or like things that this deck can do that other decks can't really do. Right. Right one of them that we haven't talked a ton about yet is land destruction the land destruction lands this is what this is what makes this deck a thing right like a, a pile of disruptive creatures does not like these these disruptive creatures does not this deck make well i mean th- they make other decks right like some of these are big contributors to humans as you mentioned you know, and some of them end up in, in other other decks as well from time to time. But, yeah, I think that one of the most unique features about this deck is that it wants to play four Ghost Quarter and it wants to play some number close to four of Field of Ruin. Sometimes it's four, sometimes it's three. But um, and it can do that because the mana in the deck is is just monocolored. Right. Yeah. I mean, although you see plenty of like green, white value town decks with night of reliquary that still play these land destruction lands in them, there's lots of ways to do it. I think field of ruin in particular has turned out to be, you know, something that sometimes you see a three color deck playing as a two of which, you know, you can feel weird about that or whatever, but people manage to make it work because the land hate is good. But as a dimension of the deck, I mean, Stan, this comes back to one of the uh, comparisons you made at the beginning of the episode about Ponza versus this deck as far as disruption goes. And so what do you think about kind of how this differentiates the plans of those two decks?
0: I mean, the fact that these are resources and they don't occupy spell slots in a deck that's full of creatures that taxes non-creature spells and also has Aether Vile, I think is why and where you played these. um arguably a little less powerful i think like you can make the the claim that you know a turn two blood moon will win games in a way that like turn two ghost quarter just doesn't you know yeah
2: yeah it's like turn two arbiter can win games in the way that blood moon can occasionally although blood moon does it more often but it, it is a big difference this this isn't like broad mana yeah. disruption right like for as much as it being a mana disruption mana advantage deck when you're playing with these lands, the hard part that I had was how much am I supposed to make sure that the that I target like a special land that I get rid of? Like, it, like really save it for some kind of payoff? Or do I use these lands to just try to keep my opponent behind me in kind of board development? And that was something that I had a hard time figuring out what to do. And I'm sure it's contextual by matchup. But I actually had a lot of of times you know i played against a lot of titan decks i played against tron a couple of times while i was doing this like just straight up green tron and i was surprised that these cards actually did not feel that great against green white titan or tron even though i could use them to go and get rid of uh their like payoff lands
0: so i'm a little surprised that you didn't think it was great against tron would you say it was like good
2: Yeah, definitely good. Definitely bought time, but it was sort of that closing right. speed thing that we've talked about where it's like it it didn't close the game quite fast enough either time um, where I where I played against it to where I ended up could use that to win the match. Now, that might just have been me playing badly or drawing badly, probably playing badly. But um, I was surprised it didn't feel like a slam dunk because essentially what I was doing was disrupting their primary game plan with a clock. But the clock still wasn't fast enough. You know, people, Tron decks can still cast, they can still cast um, Oblivion Stone without necessarily having to have Tron up. And so that gets hard sometimes. I, I mean, like if we were to offer a lead for these
0: lands, the central plan is to try to get into a position where you have them on the board at the same time as a lean and Arbiter have a fail state if you don't have arbiter out um and like they can even have a little bit of utility if you don't have arbiter out but they shine when you do
2: yeah because theoretically you have five power on the board you strip mine them to keep them from being able to play enough removal and you just kind of chip in for over a couple turns and win
0: so in the interest of time should we move on to
2: stoneforge yeah although i do want to say for one second green tron with Forsaken, Forsaken Monument, by the way, look out for it. Just That's saying. what's up? Mm. I mean, I, both of the decks that I played against had it. It saved them both times because it made their Urza's Land still tap for two once they got it on board, even when I got rid of their towers or a tower to take them off of the set. Uh, it was surprising. Hardcast Emrakul. I'm just saying, like, definitely lost to a Hardcast Emrakul, the Ans Torn, out of Tron. Probably out of the sideboard. Time to get a Russian one, it sounds like.
0: Yeah, Dave, I just finished Building Tron. I
1: have to get more cards? I don't know. There's always more cards. There's always more pieces. What is
0: this, Jund?
1: Yeah.
2: So anyway, little side note.
0: Okay. How to play Stoneforge Mystic.
2: Long, confounding to me. Oh my gosh. this This card is tough to
1: play well. And it's it's cause, because it's contextual and you have to learn context by playing it a lot. And you are the person who plays it a lot, Stan.
0: Let me try to provide some shortcuts that I've picked up. Uh, feel free to agree or disagree.
2: Can we talk first about when to play Stoneforge, though? Like, we've talked a little bit about different turns that you would play it on. But like, in my mind, there's two situations. One is, can I aggro? Like, am I going to be able to play Stoneforge and get Batterskull out immediately? That's like the first question. And then other than that, I'm just not playing it until later, basically, is is what it is. Like, if I'm playing as a deck that I don't think has a lot of removal, then I might go for the turn two Stoneforge into the turn three Batterskull so I can start, like, going for it. Does that seem wild or?
0: I, I don't think so. <laughs> okay. So let, let's start with the question of rather than when to Stoneforge, when do you get Batter Skull? Okay. So
1: Yes, exactly. That's the thing.
0: I think that's the question. Because I will <laughs> always grab a Batterskull like as early as possible, even turn two against something like Burn or Aggro. Um and if the Burn player wants to point a bolt at my Stoneforge Mystic, I think I'm coming out ahead in that exchange. I think that buys me at least a turn against Burn. Okay. And and potentially even gets you to the point where you can get five mana out to maybe hard cast a batter skull because they've now wasted a burn spell on a creature. Mm-hmm. Maybe. And and not to mention like Thalia is good against like all the other spells and their goblin guides. Um, I do think it's also really important in matchups where you have to be the beatdown. So like against Tron, I'm getting a turn two batter skull because because you need to try to close that out. That's It's the fastest thing this deck can do. And it's still not winning until like turn five or six. Best case scenario. Right. I will say I do not like Batterskull in mid-range mirrors. Where I feel like I'm nickel and diming my opponents. Because if I lose a Batterskull to a Thoughtseize. That feels horrible. And not so horrible that you can't come back from it. But like that's one of the biggest mana exchanges. That a Thoughtseize deck can get against taxes. Um And I think that's
2: a huge win in terms of the in that individual exchange. I think that makes sense to me. I mean, batterskull is kind of option. That's the first question, right? Am I getting Batterskull? Yes or no?
0: Right. So when I said that I don't like Batterskull as much in mid-range matchups, that's when I like sort of fire nice. Like if if removal is good in the matchup, I get SoFi. Um if I need to find ways to like potentially two for one or draw cards and like get up on card advantage because I'm losing it in a lot of other exchanges against my opponent, like Sword of Fire and Ice can potentially help you round that curve. Not to mention the extra two damage is sometimes relevant. Like in, in matchups where you're both just like chipping away at one another, that two damage can be reach. It can maybe pick off like a, Thali- or, um, a Liliana or a Ren and Six as well.
2: It makes sense. I mean, the other thing to just keep in mind about sort of fire and ice is that um, the equip cost is much lower than batter skulls if you end up in that situation, right? So um, you can put it on more than one creature. It's a lot easier to move around. That's that's a reason to, to grab it sometimes in, in, it, in and of itself.
0: Yeah, I also think fire and ice kind of does its best work when you already have a flyer rather than trying to make a flyer with your skyclave so mm-hmm. like if you have a flicker wisp or an archon um and an aether vial that's taken up like sort of fire and ice is going to do a ton of work for you and going to draw you a few cards and, and and very realistically win you the game and then sky mall so this is the new one that i think plays differently in different decks i like sky mall a lot when i either already have a batter skull so like attaching it to your germ token Is insane. You're going to win unless they rip a uh, what's the single white panda a miracle card? Terminus. Yeah. Unless they rip a Terminus, (laughs) a a flying batter skull will do will do its job. (laughs) Um, And likewise, I like it a lot if you have like arbiters or Skyclaves around like the creatures that kind of just do nothing on the board and you can't really always attack with them. You can't really always block with them. Um, Skyclave makes them way stronger. Mm -hmm. And and likewise, I mean, it's just generally a good closer. You know, maybe your batter skull got answered, like Skyclave will come in handy, um, if you need to find a way to just like win the game in a couple turns.
2: What do you think about this idea that um grabbing a Sky Mall is what you should do if you know that Stoneforge Mystic is gonna die because you get the auto equip with it when you play it. Well, it does something else out. Right. Can we can we take
1: a little sidebar here? And talk about how Sky Mall is being played over other swords, over like the most power, like the, the conceivably the most powerful equipment ever like made and printed into magic. Mall Mall of the Skyclaves is being seen is seeing play over them. Yeah, that's something. What's your point? I mean, I think that's something. Like, I don't think people people didn't look at Mall and say. Hachi Machi, this is, <laughs> this is busto.
2: You know who did though? Uh, Everett. Yeah. I mean, Everett. And Stan liked it a lot too, I think, right? Yeah. But Everett in our spoiler episode. Yeah. He definitely pointed it out as a spoiler, uh, on that episode and was like. A spike for newer listeners. Yeah. And I think it's the combination. It's the auto equip. Like it's just the mana efficiency that lets you have an extra angle to it if you want. And the flying adds something as far as the equipment package goes that you didn't have before before
0: dave to your question i think it's a really good question and here's my best guess i think that heuristic holds more true in a taxes deck that's full of creatures than in something like azorius or just guy control with a stone package mm-hmm. because those decks you can't necessarily count on having a lot of creatures um to equip it to like Maybe you'll have a shark token, maybe you'll have a Snapcaster Mage, but like they tend to be creature light. Here, like if you know your stoneforge is getting removed, um I I'm not saying that like Sky Mall is the best thing you can get, but if nothing else, you will find something else to attach
2: it to. Right. And to be able to do it efficiently. Right. So I right. don't know. I tried that line a couple of times. I tried it against like burn because I'm like, I know they're going to lightning bolt my Stoneforge mystic. So I'm going to get sky mall instead of Batterskull. And after what you said, I'm kind of like, I'm eh, probably wrong. I should probably gotten Batterskull anyway and let it ride. But you know, there's some of those matches where you just don't, you, you, your prospects to, for getting to five mana are not good. And you just want to make one of your creatures bigger and hopefully get it out of bolt range. And maybe that's enough to make something happen for you or stabilize against burn if they're getting really aggro. So,
0: yeah, like I might side it out against burn.
2: Yeah, maybe it's it might not be good enough. Right. So
0: um, just a little pro tip reminder, your Thalia will tax your equipment if you're planning to hard cast them. So don't, don't try to like save up three mana and then realize that
2: they're accidentally four drops. Yeah. Did you guys ever take out your stoneforge packages post board? I mean, I would shave one occasionally or take out one of the pieces of equipment, you know, here and there, but I, I pretty much left it in because there's not really that many sideboard options that, um, still provide threats in, in your board. So I think you need to keep it in so that the deck functions properly.
0: Okay, speaking of sideboard, this I think this section is going to be pretty quick. The sideboard here, super straightforward. It's got some other hate creatures. Avon Mind Sensors. Phyrexian Revoker comes up in this deck a lot. Burrington Forge against Burn or some other red-based aggro decks. Oriok Champion, same thing.
2: Revoker is super important out of the board to be able to help deal with resolved Planeswalkers and things like that. So yeah. good thing to keep in mind.
0: We also see like... A couple copies of Extra Removal. Winds of Abandon, I think, really shines in this deck because it has that Lean and Arbiter. So it's got some of that same synergy with the that Path of Exile has with Lean and Arbiter. Um and of course, you might get something like rest in peace um if you're not playing the stoneforge deck maybe you'll even have stony silence
2: i had a sweet game with winds of abandon when i was playing against green white titan and they overload winds of Abandon me when i had like five creatures out so i got to go get five lands and then i overload winds of Abandon them and got a dryad and a grazier and a titan and like it was a, a fun funny a little game there um as we start to wrap up should we talk really quick about
0: How you guys felt in various matchups and where we thought taxes was good,
2: where we felt taxes may have been underpowered. How did that game go against green, white Titan, Dave? I mean, I lost to it three times and beat it once. So that's part of the reason that I was starting to wonder if this deck is particularly good against that deck, even though it has lands payoffs. I will say one of the main problems is attacking into creatures, and that matchup is hard because they have Arboreal Grazier, they have Elvish Reclaimer, which gets to be a 3-4, and they have Dryad of the Elysian Grove, which is a 2-4, and then they have Titan. And so not always finding easy spots to attack in without equipment. And sometimes you don't have time to get the equipment. So,
0: mm-hmm. I mean,
1: this, this might be kind of going back a step here, Stan, but do you guys think this deck is good? I don't know if this deck is good. Like, I just don't know. Like, I, I don't know if this deck feels like it's doing anything more powerful than other decks. Is it more cute than good?
0: It's got a cat. We love cats.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's that's an important consideration. <laughs> I will acknowledge it. It doesn't answer my question.
0: So, Shane, this this is a really backwards way of answering your question, but here's what I think. I think this deck is, like, good in the way that red-black goblin combo is good. In that it can keep up with modern. Like, it can do well in a tournament. We'll see it in top 32. Sometimes we'll see it top 8. But I don't know if it's, like, humans good. And I think there's going to be certain metagames where it's just not that great. But it does certain powerful things that um, other decks do, like, don't like do do at all. Or if they try to do it, they have to do it in a very different way. So, like, Ponza versus Taxes. Kind of similar plans, but they go about it so differently that, like... Taxes has certain advantages that Ponza doesn't and vice versa.
1: Like, like, why am I not just mana leaking my opponent and casting crazy rate Titans and Omnath? And like, like, what's... I don't see the actual, like, real advantage of doing things to try to stop my opponent in this fashion versus being more brute force. And I'm not saying that the only reason that you would pick a deck to play is because you just want to win in the most brute force fashion. I can see a lot of fun in playing a deck like this, right? Um, It's just a matter of like, is this deck good? And I'm still,
2: I'm still not sure. I mean, I think it's fine. I think it's good. Yeah. I don't think, I think Stan kind of encapsulated it. Well, I'm not sure that it's like tier one power level, but the description, the disruption package has its metagames where it's better than others. I think that, Fundamentally, like, why am I not mana leaking to disrupt is a totally different type of question, right? Like, because this is more like, why am I not meddling mage to disrupt? Why am I not um, playing a different kind of tempo deck? Like why in certain metas, you know, you might think that this is kind of a tempo deck in the same way that like blue red prowess is because you can disrupt your opponent's plans or kill their creatures at the same time that you're kind of like getting in there to attack. And I think that's the real key here is that there's meta games where if you can apply a little bit of pressure and a little bit of disruption, and that's good. This deck is, that's what this deck does. Well, um, I do think it's, tricky. You need to learn it, especially because the really powerful lines in this deck involve uh, complicated triggers, remembering your board state, making sure you don't mess yourself up with static abilities on cards that people aren't super familiar with. And those are all things that you have to be careful of. But I I think that this deck is probably going to be around for a while. Like Stan said, it's always been around in some form. And I think this will be the form for a while until there's some other compelling reason not be, but getting things off of mono color is sometimes quite tough once they've settled on it because the mana gets so good. So Shane, I, I, I thought about it a little bit more. I think I have some
0: answers to your question because it's a great question. Why are we not mana leaking? I think part of it is, in my opinion, you played this deck to beat mana leak.
2: Mm-hmm. That's what I think too. Yeah. yeah. It makes sense.
0: I also think that this deck can, beat some of the decks that control struggles against as well. So like, although green white Titan might have a hard time against taxes because green white Titan can still do a lot of damage with tapped lands. Okay. Amulet Titan, by the way, Jack says that Amulet of Vigor does get around Archon of Emeria. Um, Amulet Titan is better against control because it has like access to Pajookabog. It's got access to um, Cavern Souls I think this can beat amulet because this is going to make fetching harder. It's going to make casting free, uh, pact of negations a little harder. Um, and sometimes you can even like make their pact of negations. Is is it pact of negation? Yeah. I guess amulet plays pact of negation. It also plays, um, the green one, uh, summoners Pact. Thank you. Um, it can make that deck lose, lose because of their (laughs) packs. If you blow up a land, yeah. Um, so so I think it's kind of like the interplay between decks where this taxes strategy can just sort of like sneak in based on what other people are doing. And we've been talking about this a lot lately on the pod, I feel like, where we just keep talking about like the metagame forces. And this is a good deck to kind of help encapsulate how metagame forces can like separate when taxes is good versus when control is good or how the two even play against each other. How it might be good against different versions of primeval titan decks, etc.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think Thalia is really good against a combo deck, mm-hmm. for example. So, like, maybe it's okay. It's definitely good against Storm. Maybe it's okay against oops, all spells. You know what I mean? Where, like, somebody's trying to cast a couple spells in a turn, especially that green version with Recross the Paths, where you're going to try to do a whole bunch of things. If you get Thalia out, like, they can't do anything until they get rid of that so i think there's combo decks that are in that space that it it's bad against i i don't like it as
0: much against humans like i think humans is probably pretty good against taxes yeah
2: yeah they just get huge and they don't care about thalia they don't care about fetching like
0: yeah same with dredge like i bet dredge beats up on taxes
2: maybe shane doesn't like this deck because all of his decks beat this deck So he looks down on it.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know what I think the real thing is, and I think I mentioned this in our, in our chat is just like this deck is a aficionado deck. Like you need to eke out more value out of these cards than the cards themselves like have on their face. Right. Like, I think you could learn to play human's passably well or dredge passably well or tron passably well you know a lot of the decks that i like i like because i think i can be decent with them without like playing like four leagues a week i think if you want to be really good at white taxes or like be peanuts playing like you know black white eldrazi taxes like you need to know so much about modern about your deck about how to maximize everything that you're doing that that's what feels hard for this that's what makes the deck feel underpowered to me is like i'm not good enough with it and i think it's fair to both acknowledge and admit that because there are that's 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 what being good at magic is about and it's a part of having fun and engaging with magic
0: yeah where dredge and tron are sort of on rails they always like do the same thing like this to me is a little closer to humans actually where depending on what your opponents do that like changes your sequencing choices. Um, It can change like your mulligan decisions really significantly. Um, So it's not really all in it. it's, It's definitely skill testing and just as punishing as it can be against certain opponents. It can be really punishing to inexperienced players who try to pick this up and, and don't know the lines don't know the matchups or, you know, don't know which cards to rely on to help execute your plan.
2: I think it's an interesting confluence of a bunch of powerful cards in a color that people thought was not that powerful and likely still is the least powerful color in modern, I guess. But, um, you know, Skyclave Apparition added a lot to this deck. And so that's part of why I think it's up here now. So much versatility from that one card getting into it as a four of, you know, it's extra removal of all kinds. Um, it plays with your with your Flickr Wisps so well. So it's just, it's a lot of extra dimensionality there. So I think it's good. I think it's a sleeve <laughs> if we're going to do that.
0: I'll give it a Believe Plus.
2: <laughs> Whoa.
0: So what if it put three copies into top eights over the weekend?
2: I'm going gonna,
1: I'm gonna, I'm gonna, to I'm gonna, I'm gonna wait in the sleeve.
0: All right. Well, that wraps up this week's show. If you haven't yet, make sure you subscribe to our podcast so you get the latest episodes as soon as they come out. And if you use Apple Podcasts, please leave us a rating and review. If you'd like to submit a question to the podcast or pick our brain on something in modern or pioneer, you can tweet us at The Dive Down, all one word, or email the dive Down at gmail.com. Hey, I'm going off script. If you are interested in hearing us talking about historic, let us know via Twitter or email. We're, we're getting a little bit of a pulse to see whether or not our listeners fans and friends would like to hear us talk about historic. It's something we've been thinking about. If you'd like to support the show, you can join our Patreon over at patreon.com slash the Also shout out to Mana Traders for sponsoring the dive down. You can sign up for Mana Traders using promo code, the dive down all one word and get 15% off your first three months of renting magic online cards. And you can rent mono white taxes at a very reasonable subscription level. This is not your euro pile where you're going to have to borrow your friend's cards. As always, special thanks to the bands Nowhere and Spaceblood for letting us use their music. And until next week, get out there and pay your taxes!